Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a Dose Nation special. Uh, here with me in the Mojo Video Tech Studio is Dennis McCann, author of The Brotherhood of the Streaming Abyss, and of course, uh, founder of Dose Nation, James Cannon, the co-host of uh, the podcast. So, welcome everybody, and uh, thank you for joining us, Dennis. It's great to meet you in person and uh, to be able to do this uh, interview. It's great to be here, Jake. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, let me go ahead and hand it over to James. Uh, and uh, yeah, well, I'm excited for this interview because uh, I've been fascinated with uh, Terrence McKenna's work in the invisible landscape and the events that came out of La Chirera in uh, 1971. And I've never got a chance to sit down and talk to Dennis about this, even though I talked to Terrence on a few occasions about his experiences. And many times when I was talking to Terrence, he said, well, you should ask Dennis these questions because <laughs> he's really the one who came up with the whole theory of hyperpolation in the event uh, that went down in La Chirera. And I think this is the first time I've ever had a chance to sit down with Dennis and discuss that event. Uh, and I think after reading The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, <laughs> Dennis, would you agree that that was a, a pretty seminal moment in your and Terrence's life? Well, yes. Yes, I'd say it was more than seminal. I'd say that, uh, you know, uh, really everything since then has been has been lived the rest of our lives ever since we went to La Chirera in search of we weren't sure what, but whatever we tangled with there. And then everything after La Chirera was, you know, literally post-La Chirera. And I think in a lot of ways our lives have been lived in the reflection of that event. You know, either, uh, you know, there's really no getting away from it. You know, one of the uh, you know puzzling things, or one of one of the conundrums about the experiment at La Chirera, actually, I like your characterization of it as the event at La Chirera. That's more accurate. Well, that's your words. You took that in the book. You said it, it cannot be reproduced. Therefore, it's not really an experiment. It's not it really an experiment. Thing. It's a one-time thing. And uh, exactly, it's not. You know, at the time we conceived of it as an experiment, but it really isn't. Uh, but whatever it was, it had a tremendous impact, and a lot of, uh, you know, everything that followed was an effort to kind of sort out what was going on, and, you know, here we are 40 years later, and I still don't know what was going on, um, so well, I want to I want to talk a little bit about because uh, I was I've long been fascinated by um, the hypercarbolation process and what you what you came up with as the theory for how to induce this uh, this the superconductivity in DNA, which allows language to become visible or allows the mind to become a visible manifested object. Mm-hmm. You were you were getting messages from a teacher. Uh, about like an, an electron spin resonance uh, frequency that you were hearing in your head and you were supposed to match this frequency and that would bring about this hypercarbolation process. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, that noise you heard in your head and, sure. and how you associate it with the, with the ESR and what you think it might be now, 40 years in, sure. in hindsight? I, well, yeah. I, I mean, yes, we were, uh, we were getting into a place... Uh, after, uh, you know, getting to La Chirera's after a number of days of pretty much 
eating mushrooms constantly, uh, we got into a situation where we felt really that another entity was was checking in on us or watching us. It wasn't clear whether it was the mushroom or whether the mushroom was a you know some a window or a lens through which whatever this this teacher was which sometimes presented itself as an insectile being, a mantis or whatever. Not that we really saw anything. It was more a sense of right. you know, who was at the table, who was engaged in this conversation. And there was a sense of this very intelligent, non-human entity that was just basically explaining uh, you know, some concepts to us and after a while started explaining how we could do an experiment to verify some of this and we but uh, let me i want to i want to talk about this buzzing that started in your head after you ate i think 18 mushrooms right you said at one point right uh, uh, leading up to the trip can you describe that buzzing sound and why you associated it with electron spin resonance well i associated it with electron spin uh, it was it was kind of an electronic buzzing sound it was kind of like you know, an electrical, electromagnetic, resonating, I don't know what you would exactly call it. A like, a, like a tone or a frequency or a, well, a except, progression of tones? Yeah, a tone, not really a tone in the sense that it wasn't very musical. It was kind of, it was actually kind of, uh, you know, grating on the ears. Uh, so like a mechanical, like a mechanical kind yeah, of more like that. machinery noise. More like that. More like okay. more like a a circuit malfunctioning or something like that. And this was this tone could be heard uh, at high doses of mushrooms, and it's often similar to what one hears on DMT. Actually, noises, sounds with DMT are perhaps more accessible to people with the mushrooms. We ha even on high doses, we had to kind of make an effort to really hear this sound. But the mushroom <laughs> was telling us, or the teacher was telling us, that if we could hear this sound, that this was the electron spin resonance of the molecules, the beta-carbolines and the tryptamines intercalating into DNA, and it was okay. So intercalating means the molecules are actually nestling right in between the rungs of DNA. That's between right. The sugars that connect the DNA strings together. That's right. That's right. Okay. And and, and, and it was, what kind of what kind of research has been done to to show that this is actually possible? Well, that intercalation is possible. Very little, actually. There has been research that shows that that in the test tube. Uh, this goes on. This readily happens. Tryptamines and beta-carbolines will intercalate into DNA. If you just put them together in a test tube and shake them up, you can measure that intercalation process by uh, essentially the way they do it in, in vitro is through measuring the reduction in fluorescence of the compounds as they're bound to DNA. That fluorescence is quenched. So you get a very nice quantitative binding curve in the test tube. Now, does any of this go, make sense, or does it go on inside the body? Um, you know, does it have any real physiological significance? I kind of, well, I don't know. I, I don't want to dismiss it, but... I, 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 do you, uh, I've had people come up to me at conferences and say that they have heard evidence or some research that shows that 
a psilocybin molecule or a tryptamine molecule can actually make it inside the cell membrane and approach the nucleus. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I have not heard that okay. kind of evidence. If that's okay. true, then that makes it much more plausible. Uh, you know, the model that we were working with at the time was that it was based at, at the time, in 1971, nobody really knew what the receptor for psilocybin or these other psychedelics was. In fact, the concept of a receptor at that time was a much more abstract idea. No one really knew what the molecular configuration of receptors were. I mean, pharmacology told us there had to be receptors, but nobody really knew what these were, and there was controversy at the time. Uh, one theory that was out there was that the receptors were actually small segments of DNA or RNA that were localized in the neuronal membranes. And that was kind of the model that we were working from at the time. Uh, we now know that that's bunk. I mean, we, we know what the receptors are now. They're the receptors for most of the neurotransmitters have been, you know, they're proteins, they're large proteins that sit in the membrane. They've all been sequenced. They've been cloned. You know, we know exactly what the structure of the hallucinogen receptor is. It's the 5-HT2A receptor. It's the serotonin. Right. And we know what it's trying. We know a lot that we didn't know then, you know, so there has been progress. But nonetheless... So if you wanted the, to set outside the notion of intercalation as the source of this humming, what, well, what, what else would you speculate what, where it was coming from? The, the noise, that's that's really hard hard to say you know but what, it's some sort of artifact of the tryptamine interacting with some your sort of artifact system. of the tryptamine interaction and you know some sort of audio hallucination of some kind uh, we now know that the tryptamines do affect the audio perception audio perception as much as visual perception you know sasha shulgin has actually developed derivatives of dmt that have a profound effect on uh, the, the uh, audio five meo dipt. That one dipt, D-I-P-T yeah. exactly dipt is one of them, and so you know, but where that originates in the brain, how that affects the the audio you know apparatus, uh, I don't know. You know, I, the interesting thing about you know what the teacher was was sort of wrapping down to us at La Chirera. It was pre presenting all of this stuff, you know, in a very matter-of-fact way. It was like, you know, it was like, this is the way it is, boys. You know, right. don't, don't question this. I'm just telling you the way it is. Now, is that is that <laughs> voice the way that your father used to talk to you, to you both? Or is that voice just completely uh, external to your, your previous no, life? No, well, it, it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't quite like that. But it, was, it wasn't really saying it in that way. But it was saying it that, you know, this is the outline of the work in a certain right. sense. This is what you need to understand. These are the operations you need to do to bring about this effect. You need to hear this sound, imitate it, and you know, and get your voice to lock onto it, and it will set up these resonances between the DNA in our bodies and the intercalated DNA in the mushroom. You get this fourth-dimensional. Uh, 
you know, transformation uh, and set up this standing waveform. The ultimate, uh, you know, goal of the thing was that it would, it would manifest as a standing waveform of DNA, of, as a hologram, and there would actually be a, uh, you know, a stable system that could be modulated by thought and that you could, you know, you could interact with uh, so, so telepathically. So if, if, we, if we take all of the, the scientific terms out of it, basically what you're doing is you're generating a tone with your voice mm-hmm. to amplify through some sort of biofeedback the sound that you're hearing in your head. Right, right. And that, that biofeedback amplification pushes whatever state you're in up into this standing wave that's just, that's slightly above where you normally are, and then that state stabilizes through that resonance. That state stabilizes, and you get this superconducting. You get this this bond between the the tryptamines, beta carbolines, and DNA <clears throat> becomes superconducting, and that's what uh, renders it. That's what that's what renders it. Uh, sustained as a sustained signal the fact that you know with sound essentially by locking in on these frequencies you cancel the electrical charges in these molecules that normally would interfere with that so that's how they fall into a superconducting a superconducting state now and that and that's essentially um you're talking about the peak of this psychedelic trip where you're in this timeless space or this singularity where all time has already existed and everything is happening all at once and, you know, all of those archetypal things that we now associate with, with the Terrence McKenna well, rap, yeah, the McKenna but, boys rap. Yeah, but, but not, not to be confused with the time wave and the singularity that sure, sure. is associated okay. with that. He was talking, we were talking about setting up, you know, this, this superconducting bond which would manifest, which would actually, you know, as this transformation took place through a higher dimension right it would become visible essentially as a glowing uh you know lenticular object as the mush as the temperature right was the lens, lowered the transcendental right. object exactly all of right. that well so when you were trying to invoke this transcendental object you were you were vocalizing pretty loud. You were howling. Is, is that I right? Was, were you like just I was howling. howling your guts out? Pretty much. Yes. Have you ever <laughs> have you ever yelled that loud in your life since then? Uh, I no, actually, I don't think so. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine just, any event in human in human culture where yelling that loud would be allowed? Well, the only th- analogy I can imagine is certain states of of profound grief, you know, where uh, right. a whale is just is just literally ripped out of you. And actually I had that experience when I when Terence died, you know, I'm I'm generally not an emotional person. I don't respond on those levels, but when I got the news that he had died after this long illness and many nights of vigil and all that, I mean, I let out a whale that it wasn't the beta carboline whale but it was certainly from my gut and just really quite involuntary um but back to la Chirera, you know I, I i mean so you know we we were essentially handed a model and and it said 
if if you do these things, these things will happen. And it's not really, and we were not biophysicists, and we were not really scientists. We, we were, uh, you know, we were curious people who actually didn't know very much, you know, and we were being guided by what we perceived to be a higher intelligence. It was like, do these things, and you will create this alchemical transformation. Well, that didn't happen, obviously, because <laughs> probably it was impossible. I mean, if it had happened, we wouldn't be here. We'd be somewhere else, but it was impossible. Can we, can we talk a little bit about this um, this obsidian or violet psychofluid or the phlegm? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned that for a couple paragraphs in your book. Right. And I was wondering how much of that influenced what you were what you were going into. That, well, that very much. Of a shaman regurgitating this fluid. Very much so. In fact, we should have really started with that because that that is where that was the nucleus of these ideas when we were at La Chirera, in the in the hut, eating mushrooms, and just every night bouncing around, you know, these crazy notions. And one of the things that came up was, well, two things, really. One was Terence's description of what had happened to him on that rooftop in Kathmandu some years before, which I think is described very well in True Hallucinations, where he right. and his yeah. consort at the time had a DMT trip together where they were essentially, when they were making love, they were exuding this this obsidian fluid, and it was getting really pretty bizarre and insectile. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that model, and then there was... You know, uh, there was this article in, uh, I think it was Natural History magazine, or maybe it was, I think it was Natural History, by Michael Harner, in which he talked about the Schwar who produced this phlegm out of their bodies, this material that has magical properties. It's like, it's like a, an, an, an analog of what Terry called the, the violet psychofluid. It is a physical substance that they could you know, expel from their bodies and they could look into this substance and it seemed to have the properties of you know, a scrying stone or a crystal ball or all of these analogies, you know, something where they could see distant places, they could, uh, you know, they could uh, get information that normally couldn't be obtained. Um, so, you know, Terence and I were very immersed in alchemy and very much into Jung's writings about alchemy. So, so you know, we weren't that unfamiliar with these ideas. I mean, that I, mean, I guess Jung's writing about alchemy gave us a basis to say, well, yeah, violet psychofluorid, uh, check. Uh, you know, magical phlegm, check. Uh, you know, uh, because alchemy also talks about this in terms of the mercury, and a, a big, a big step in alchemy. The one of the goals is alchemy is to fix this mercury, which you know, and that's really what the experiment with Lacherera was all about. I mean, that was so our you uh, associated was. the alchemical mercury with this violet psychofluid. Um, exactly. I, I've talked to a, a lot of people who've done high dose mushrooms and high dose tryptamines, ayahuasca, and DMT. And this is a commonly reported thing. In fact, my friends and I, uh, before we had ever heard a story about psychofluid, we used to call it holoplasm. 
there you go. And it, it was very much like a Mercury or something that you would see in a James Cameron movie, you know, this bubbling up sort of silvery liquid mm-hmm. that can take the shape of any idea that you, you think of. Right. And, so and then that it sort of shows... becomes autonomous. Once you've started shaping it, then it sort of becomes its own thing. Yeah, so so that indicates there really is something going on here. It's right. not, and, it's not and, just uh, Terry the, and The, uh, and the shaman uses this notion of the verote, or the, the magical dart that they exclude from their, their stomach and their phlegm. Right. You, in, in, in your, I mean, even though this defies rationality, can you kind of like speculate on, on how you feel the, what the validity of this is and, and how to approach this from a, like a metaphysical or ontological standpoint? Well, you know, it's hard. I mean, if you look into the ayahuasca tradition, also the, the idea about the phlegm and this magical substance is very much part of that tradition. You know, and, and you know, I, I mean, I have never seen, I've taken a lot of ayahuasca with lots of different practitioners. I haven't seen anyone produce anything like this substance, at least that I that I was aware of. I mean, okay, circumstances usually are you're in the dark, you don't know what's going on, you know. But uh, it's it's hard to it's it's hard to know, and yet uh, there are enough uh, enough analogies in history, the alchemical, the shamanic, and enough people can report similar experiences that it makes you think maybe there really is something going on that that you know with the voice with sound under certain circumstances you can uh, you can uh, cause interesting things to go on on the molecular level and of course what we postulated would go on didn't happen we didn't get a violet ring uh, you know a, a violet disc after the mushroom had exploded into ice crystals. That didn't happen. But what did happen, <laughs> right, right. you know, what did happen was we got a very sustained uh, um, reaction. We both simultaneously underwent a, a highly altered state that lasted for about two weeks, in which telepathy was a big, uh, a big aspect, and. All sorts of things were going on. Well, let's talk about <laughs> telepathy for, for a second. Even though um, many people describe on high-dose mushroom trips telepathy, I think it's a very common uh, reported occurrence. In fact, I get email and uh, contacted by people all the time wanting to know more about you know tele- telepathic experiences that, that they've had. Mm-hmm. And you know, even though it seems like it's a natural thing that happens, all the scientific research tends to show that well, telepathy is just sort of not—it's just not there. What what is your take on it? Having been in that telepathic state for so long, do you think there's something real going on there? And if so, is it like a particular form of psychosis where you don't want to be in that state, or is it some something else like a gift that you get only for a short period of time? I think more it's like a gift that you get. I I think you know we need to be careful about dismissing telepathy. Uh, right there, there's just too much evidence that it does go on. There are now scientific approaches that that you know can be applied, um, and the results are not. You know the results of those kind of verify that it does happen, but the results are, you know, in in some ways they're subject to interpretation. 
Uh, right, they could be they could be considered insignificant or they, not, they, non-conclusive. That not conclusive, exactly. Right. And that's the trick, really, with trying to study any of this phenomena because you know, in a scientific way, because because you know, science depends on replication, and the whole idea is if you if you set up the same experiment with the same variables in the same circumstances, you're going to get the same result, and that's just an operating you know assumption of science and a a reasonable one but it also is what limits science because it's very hard to study these kinds of phenomenon these are you know and that really you know these are one of a kind kind of things they don't happen replicably replicably whatever and uh and that's really in a way what led to Terence's development of the time wave and that whole thing was an attempt to you know kind of define i mean the idea emerged that you know time itself has a structure and that, so what that came out of a telepathy well events like this events like la charrera <laughs> oh, oh like i see telepathy. i see when you have a you have a seminal event like this in time where you've got this magical crossover thing happening that's plaudible, and that's that, that plotting of those events became it, what the time wave theory was it, based in on? In a sense, yeah. yeah. To say, I mean, the hypothesis was that these things happen only when the temporal uh, landscape, if you will, permits it, the temporal variables. So the idea was that time, just like space, has an actual structure, and within certain boundary conditions... It, it determines what can happen. Well, most of the boundary conditions are, you know, habitual. They're not particularly novel. Really novel uh, events are rare. But once in a while, the boundary conditions loosen up. And then you can get these anomalous paranormal events happening. So that was really the basis of the theory. And then it, it, he went one step further and attempted to actually quantify this he under you know after the experiment at La Cherere, he started making these graphs rather obsessively at first not really based on the i ching that came later they were based on you know uh kind of personal um cycles related weren't you weren't you saying he was kind of taking a punctal approach or something where he was like looking for specific dates and events that mapped onto a like a well, cyclical yeah that that came later that came oh. later in the years of theorizing about the time wave but at la Cherera at the time it it was much more what you might call seat of the pants kind of calculating it was all about we did the experiment the postulated hyperdimensional object did not appear, you know, but Terence, at least Terence, was getting the message from the teacher that, yeah, you guys have succeeded, right? You've actually done this. The reason it's not appearing is because this object is atemporal by definition. So your job is to figure out when it's going to show up, you know, and, and, right. and he, you know, I mean, and, 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 and so he started plotting, uh, trying to plot the date of our experiment, count back 64, I think two times 64 days, you come to the date of our mother's death, 
count right. forward and you know you come to his birthday so these were all these very personal cycles but he was trying to get a handle on where this thing and where and when would it appear and and after the experiment you know even though i was completely three sheets to the wind and very much off in hyperspace you know i mean he'd take me out to the pasture every morning and say okay cough it up right you know, where storm. is it you know, I want you to right. give it to me. <laughs> so, uh, it's like, I wanna, man, I, I don't know where it is. I am really drawn to this notion of these uh, temporal events or these temporal nodal points where uh, the novelty is at some sort of maximum that that you can kind of tap into if you if you have the right boundary conditions. It sounds to me a little right. bit like a, a a very a more existential riff on dose set and setting that basically says. There are only going to be a few perfect points in a human lifetime where the dose set and setting is just right for this kind of thing to occur. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 what is it about and, psychedelics that intersect with those 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 temporal well, points? You well, think? I mean, there seems to be a very very distinct connection there. Yeah, I mean, set and setting is very important for the outcome of psychedelic experiences, but also I think we have to go back. What we're really doing is not an experiment. We're doing magic. We're doing a right. ritual. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at magic, if you look at magical practices, it's all about setting up a series of protocols, a series of rituals and hoops that you jump through, essentially, to call up the demons or these entities if you're trying to manifest those things. You know, uh, I mean, I mean, ceremonial magic is basically uh, exactly the same thing. Set up a, a a set and setting that is designed to open the portals, essentially, let allow these anomalous events to emerge into our continuum temporarily. Now, they don't tell you what you do once they're there. I mean, how do you close <laughs> the portal? That's the that's the trick, right? And, and that, that's the basis of, of many an H.P. Lovecraft story and many other horror stories. You know, the, you can open the dimension. How do you close the door? Um, maybe you don't, you know. Maybe once it's out, it's out. But I think that's the, that's the overlap, really. That, that's the, uh, you know, sort of relevance of set and setting. The set and setting was we very specifically, without really knowing what we were doing, but we very specifically uh, orchestrated a, a ritual environment at La Chirera based on what the, what the teacher was telling us, if you do these things, this will happen. And uh, we were just following instructions, really. Right. Now, you talk, you talk a little bit in the book about um, DMT being possibly a means of alien communication or some sort of alien telepathy. And uh, mm -hmm. you, you spend quite a f I think quite a few pages talking about this notion of uh, um, you know, seeding a planet with organisms that have serotonin-modulated brains so that at some point they'll discover this chemical that allows them to see into whatever space that these, these beings communicate on. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was surprised to see how much space you spent on that. Do you, do you actually think that there's a core or a thread of truth there, that, that something's going on, that aliens are trying to commu communicate with us? And if so, what, is, is what they're trying to communicate worth anything? Well, y uh, you know, yes to both. I mean, I actually do 
believe, or maybe I'd like to believe. I'm not, you know, I mean, I, you have to step away from being the total reductionist, you know, scientist and, and uh, allow your imagination to run a little. But I don't think it's impossible that, you know, DMT and the other tryptamines and, and indeed the, not so much that, but the, the genes for tryptophan itself from which all these things arise in the in the biosphere was is actually an artifact you know and that it was put there by could have been put there uh by you know a a super technological civilization that wanted to conduct an experiment on our planet and wanted to see what happens you know if you seed these genes into the biosphere you know, the serotonin receptors are evolutionarily the oldest receptors that we know of. They are more ancient, they are almost as ancient as the rhodopsin receptors, which is what they spring from. They're the evolutionary right. the light, light sensitive receptors. Light sensitive receptors. And so, you know, even bacteria have serotonin receptors. So clearly, serotonin. And these other tryptamines are important messenger molecules, not just in the brain, but even in the ecology. And so in the chapter you're talking about, I speculate about, you know, SETI and, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, all that thing. And basically criticize the current approach to SETI, which is about as you know, unimaginative is I guess a good term as you can you know, as you can conceive, the idea that, you know, if you, if it's not a radio signal, it's not real. You know, I just think it's highly unlikely that a super advanced civilization is going to be sending us radio signals. I mean, that went out, you know, with Marconi, right? And they may have other better ways to uh, to communicate with us, and there's no better way, or one of the ways that I don't know if there's no better way, but one of the ways they might have done that is to seed certain genetic sequences into, you know, kind of the collective genetic soup of the biosphere and then let the experiment run. It's almost as though in order to communicate with these intelligent, this intelligent species, namely us, they almost had to create, they had to create the situation, the circumstances in which that species could evolve and then sort of turn around and look back on itself. And, uh, you know, again, it, it's a myth. Um, it's To me, it's an appealing myth. And there's just as much evidence for that as anything else, you know. If, if you look at just the uh, sort of the unlikeliness of our existential situation, the fact that we're here on this planet, this species has has arisen, we're a self-reflective species, we have language, we have technology, we respond to these psychedelic drugs in the way that we do. Uh, I mean, how likely is that? You know, uh, I mean, Darwinism and random selection doesn't really seem to me to to answer that that seems as implausible as the idea that we are a prolonged and by prolonged i mean billion year long genetic experiment uh by 
who knows who, you know, somebody that we would probably call God, you know, if we were ever in touch with them. But I don't want to evoke necessarily intelligent design and all that. I, I don't, you know, intelligent design and these other scenarios about evolution, the problem is that they don't explain anything. They don't have any explanatory right. power at all. They're just black boxes. Well, you know, we don't understand this process. Okay, God did it. Well, yeah, and so did the flying spaghetti monster. You know, or the or aliens. Who, or the right. aliens or whoever. But aliens are more probable so let me, than, let me than go back God. To the second you know? part of the question, which is that if, if there is some kind of alien intelligence coming through, what is it what is it trying to communicate? Why is the communication so cryptic and full of riddles and, and hard to hard to pin down? Mm, that's a good question. You know, and I don't know the answer. I I mean I really don't know and I don't know that anyone does. It's it is a puzzling. If they want to communicate with us, if they really, you know, why don't they just kick out the jams and land on this White House lawn and call CNN and let's get it over with, you know? But- <laughs> right, yeah. It seems like it would be it would be a little more straightforward than than you know, hiding some cryptic message in DNA or or through crop circles or whatever, picking random people up in the middle of, of yeah. the so the they, of the they must have a and, reason you know, probing them. Yeah, I mean, what is all that about? They must have some, for some reason, they must, I mean, obviously they do. If this is what's going on, they they prefer to do it that way. And partly it may be that they just don't want to create, you know, cultural, social hysteria, which which the White House lawn scenario certainly would. Um For a but day then or two. For a right. day or so, but, and, well, it would... <laughs> It would be more chaotic than that because, you know, uh, all the major oh, yeah. religions there would be, there would would be collapse. Uh, economic ramifications that would probably collapse most of our, our what we consider to be our current economy and finance system. Pretty much, pretty well, much. I mean, I mean, as, as far as their experiment goes, it actually uh, it, w- it would make sense for them to keep their presence unknown to us as far as a physical kind of contact because, uh, you know, like I said, it would throw us into this kind of you know crazy dystopia. But the other question is is um, if they did in fact, you know, start life on this planet or contribute to life on this planet, why, why, would, they, why would they not have uh, con- kept continual contact or, you know, to, through at least our governments to, you know, some kind of... Well, but you know, if, you were, if you were an alien species yeah. and you, could, you had a pretty good handle through watching television and watching, you know, the media, right. what was going on down here, would, would the government necessarily be the first entities you would approach? Probably no. not. You right. would say, these people are clowns. We can't talk to these people. You know? Right. They're, they're <laughs> more, probably more highly evolved than we are, I would right. think. Right. But then, but then does that explain how they would talk to, you know, why would they talk to, you know, two deluded hippies who ran off to the Amazon to search for, you know, the search for uh, hallucinogens? I mean, wh- why are we any more credible? So I want to I want to go back to this alien thing because uh, I I had done uh, LSD and mushrooms probably a good <laughs> few dozen times before I ever heard a Terence McKenna lecture and made any connection between aliens and the psychedelic experience. Mm-hmm. And yet, after listening to Terrence, suddenly I was seeing elves, and suddenly I was seeing aliens, and suddenly I was seeing these big Mayan temples with stone carved blocks. 
And I was wondering, is it possible that maybe just the human mind is really suggestible when these kind of things happen? Mm -hmm. And we, we hear the alien archetype and suddenly that's what it becomes whenever we do it? It, it is. It's very possible that it's, that it's suggestible. And if, you're, if, you're, uh, you know, if your experience is pre-Terence McKenna and post-Terence McKenna are, are quite variable, then I think you have to wonder how much did he condition people to perceive this? The, the, but not everybody who has these alien experiences with the tryptamines is a Terence McKenna fan. You know, and sure. I, I realize it can happen. It can happen to anybody. I mean, anybody can associate it with the alien. Uh, you know, before I was kind of a deadhead, and I would see like skulls and jesters and all of this sort of romantic uh, rose and thorn type imagery that that's associated with that band culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was sort of the space that I was in. I was in this Grateful Dead bardo. Right, I, I would guess. Right, right. And then I moved into a Terence McKenna Bardo. And uh-huh. I've talked to many people over the years who continue to have the Terence McKenna trip. They'll take a very high dose of mushrooms and suddenly the elves will be there and the aliens will be there and they're psychic and there's communication from the galactic center and uh-huh. everything is spiraling towards a wormhole at the end of time uh, and 2012 often is integrated into this. Although that's now become an obsolete meme. Even though I suppose people could still have the trip where they're going through a singularity backwards in time towards 2012. Yeah, that would be well, interesting. 2012, <laughs> 2012 was you know postulated to be a the big test of the time wave, uh, you know, and obviously it failed. Although it was never really defined what that test was going to be, uh, but but that was a result of of Terence's you know, over time, over 20, 30 years, trying to fit events against, fit the time wave to historical events and come up with a hypothesis as, as to when the singularity point would emerge. And uh, eventually it sort of became associated with the Mayan, the end of the Mayan uh, 13th Baktun. And I, I was never sure how Terence got... Um connected with Jose Arguez. I mean, Jose Arguez was one who basically came up with the whole Mayan 2012 Bakhtun thing. And then Terence sort of adopted it into his, his He theory. adopted it into his theories, as far as and, I and can did tell. He met Jose Arguez at some point? And they yeah, I believe these. he did. I mean, Terence had predicted some dates for the end date that were quite close to, to, the, to the predicted end date under the Mayan scenario, I, I think there was within a few weeks, you know, eight weeks or something, he had found a date in 2012 that was close enough to the Mayan calendar. And since we were talking about billions of years, cycles of billions of years, it was an infinitesimal tweak, really. Uh, and he, you know, Arguez's work came to Terence's attention and and he basically said, well, you know, close enough. And this is from independent sources. Here's another theorist that says, yeah, there's going to be a major shift in ontological, you know, in, in ontology on or around this date. Good enough for us. So he adjusted his date accordingly. 
although that's not entirely established. But uh, I think that's the way it happened. So I want to let's go back to the uh, the transcendental object that you were going to produce at La Chirera that never materialized. This was supposed to be like a bellwether of a new age that was supposed to raise, elevate consciousness into this into this new. It would, into this new, is that is that right? Is that kind of yeah, what you were going yeah. for? Yes, essentially, yes. Because so, and that and that notion has become adopted into the the new age platform as sort of this. There's going to be this evolution of consciousness at some point. Did that come from you guys? Were you the ones who who sort of brought that meme into the the front of new age consciousness? Well, or was that did that come out of just the general hippie movement? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think that his I think that every historical age anticipates a post-historic age, when a post-historic golden age, which is not really, you know, it's atemporal. It's it's pat, it's beyond history. I think every every history-bound culture anticipates the end of its own history, and usually succeeded by some golden age. Usually after a period of cataclysm, you know, they they uh, obviously the the you know the Christian eschatology is the is the model that we're most familiar with. Um, so, you know. I, I can't say that we're responsible for it. Uh, oh, you know, I, I really, I really wouldn't take credit for it. I think that. Every, I think but you that, were just embracing that notion of a sort of a, a we were, resurrection or a rebirth yeah, or a, yeah. a renewal, a transcendence of of our our human suffering of some kind. Yeah, exactly. But also, I mean, I mean, it's partly about our Catholic background. I mean, we were Catholics. We were very much involved. You know, Catholic. Catholicism, Christianity, and especially Catholicism, uh, is is the eschatological religion, you know, par excellence, right? In other words, there is going to be an end of time. There will be a judgment day. You know, the righteous will be lifted up, and the and the uh, the sinners will be punished. And you know, we see this scenario in in Christian. Um, eschatological uh, scenarios all the time. So we were influenced by that in the sense that we were influenced by a notion that time is a linear thing. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the, the end of time you know, under that Christian um, you know, sort of ideology uh, is associated with, uh, with you know, the end of history. So we had those ideas uh, and, very and much manifesting the transcendental object that's like like resurrecting the flesh of Christ yeah, I mean exactly I think there were some words to that effect in the book yeah exactly uh, the the transcendental object to create the transcendental object whatever you want to however you want to characterize it the philosopher's stone the resurrection body the UFO the out the you know the alchemical mirror all of these are sort of archetypal um, anticipations or reflections of the idea that you could create something that would be essentially a piece of technology, you know, an object, but it would be the ultimate object because you would be able to do anything you wanted it to do. It would be the imagination made manifest. And, and if you could do that, if you could actually come up with that thing, and hold it in your hand like we can, you know, my iPhone or whatever, and make it do stuff, 
that would by definition be the end of history and the end of this you know his this uh you know essentially limited um existence in in what we call ordinary space time because we would we would not be bound by any of those constraints anymore you know we would then transition from a uh, uh you know a situation where we live essentially in three space and we're quite severely bound by what we can do to a situation where we live in another dimension and we can do literally whatever we can imagine. And that would bring about the end of history, I would think, because all you have to do is say, bring about the end of history. <laughs> and it happens, yeah. and it happens. So, right there. there it is. You know? And so actually, this is, this is the scenario. On, do you still ever feel uh, the pressure to cough it up, so to speak, to actually produce the thing? Or is that sort of left, left you now? Is it well, like that's a, left a, a, me now. Something from your foolhardy youth. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I can cough it up. I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know that anybody I, could. But it, I think know? in the book you said that for a while that you, were, you, you actually felt that constant pressure that you needed to actually produce it at some point well i did i i did for a long time but then you know but that was pretty early on you know when and I, eventually over time i began to you know become skeptical more skeptical about the time wave i was always skeptical about it but terence and i diverged in a certain sense after a while he I mean, in some ways, you could say that, you know, uh, after we had our simultaneous psychosis or shamanic election or whatever it was at La Chirera, you know, I mean, I came back to Earth and he didn't, you know, in a certain way in that he kept, he, he continued to believe in these ideas, and for years insisted. Didn't that you say he renounced science as being as being unimportant? He just said well, it was, he was, it was he beyond. Was, the yeah, he was he was ready to reject science after the experiment at La Chirera, and that was really the beginning of our sort of diversion. Because I said at the time, I said we can't reject science. We're not scientists, you know? <laughs> and, and what we did was not science you know it was magic it was ritual so before we you know hasten to reject science we got to become scientists so that we know what science is so that we know how to do science and that sort of became my mission really for the rest of my life i stepped back from it and i i, I said you know i don't know about this stuff i don't know and i don't really you know i don't want to go I don't want to lose my mind is what the the simplest scenario was. And so in a way, I took refuge in science. I, I mean, I went back to South America 10 years later, you know, with a very specific kind of ethnobotanical objective. I was doing my graduate work, and it was investigating ayahuasca and ukuhe. But it was very nuts and bolts and down to earth and quite boring compared to La Chirera. You know, it was like collect some plants, analyze it, do do science. You know, right, and right. Science isn't as fun as magic. It's pretty tedious. A lot of it is pretty tedious. But on the other hand, you can you can defend the results and verify the results, and that's what's impossible with with La Chirera. So yeah. I have kind of I have a question that may be hard or difficult for you to answer because I don't know if there's really any object activity there but your experience at La Chirera and writing the invisible landscape and and how your your life was changed by that event 
would you say that that helped or hurt your academic career going forward in what you wanted to study? Hmm. Well, I I don't see that it's hurt it. <laughs> okay. Well, I just wanted I, I, don't, to, I, I haven't wanted had, to know if you ever felt any resistance from from anybody in the academic field because not really, but it's partly because we kept things well under wraps. You know, I mean, I mean, in in my academic encounters, I didn't necessarily go in and and lay out La Chirera, you know, as my introductory conversation with potential, you know, thesis supervisors and all that. Uh, right. You know, like Sandy Siegel in Hawaii or Neil Towers in in Vancouver. That wasn't my opening gambit. It was it only later that I kind of let let them know, you know, how really nuts I was. You know, I I tried to mask it to a certain degree and present myself as a serious, you know, sober scientist. You know, which I was and and am, but I but I'm a sober scientist who lives always in the perception of uh, how limited science is. You know, right. I mean, it it's great for certain things. Is it so, where we should look for oh. ultimate answers? I don't know. I, I can't say that it is. Maybe that's why people, you know, get disillusioned with science, and then they go looking for religion. They look for some other spiritual thing. The The danger of that is, in my opinion... You know, so, okay, science is not yielding the, the spiritual satisfaction or the insight about being that we crave. So let's go to religion. Well, here's a whole set of, you know, pre-formulated answers, right? Just swallow this pill, believe these things, my son, you know, have faith, and you will be happy, you know. And right. I, I, I don't buy it, but many people do buy it. Well, so after, faith, after it's, writing it's, it's, The Brotherhood uh, and, and sort of having the reflection of this 40 years after the event, uh, what, what is it that you, that you want people to remember most about Terrence and your work and what you think your, your legacy will be going forward into the future? Wow, you do ask the tough questions. Well, you know, <laughs> you 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 do t you talk about it a little bit in the book about how you think people will remember you and what do you think you'll be remembered for? It's 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 you know, I think kind of yeah. why you wrote the book. So Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to do with The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss was really tell my side of the story, you know, and which has never really been told. It's been it's been by me. Uh, it's my story has been told by Terence, and of course we've all given talks and places. I wanted to set that down on paper. Not necessarily as the definitive story, but as the story of what I can recollect from this point in you know, in my life when I reflect back on all these events and really on my whole life. So it's a memoir in that sense. And I think there's always a certain anxiety when you write a memoir. I mean, I know one of the motivations that I had for choosing to write it at this time was really I'm appalled by how much I've forgotten. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, am I, am I losing it? And I better get this stuff written down while I can still remember anything. But it's, you know, I mean, I don't really think I'm losing it. But, you know, there's a certain certain anxiety about what do I really re recollect about what happened. I think what I would like to be remembered for, uh, what I'd like for the two of us to be remembered for is a couple of things. Uh, one of it, one, just 
that we we had open minds and we pursued you know passionately what we thought was important what we thought was interesting maybe not with a great deal of you know intellectual acuity or whatever maybe our minds were too open we were perhaps too credulous but we went after it we were honest you know we weren't in denial we didn't shove it under the the carpet and say well that's interesting now let's get back to whatever we were doing we were saying you know this is clearly the most interesting thing we've ever stumbled on we have to go for it balls to the walls and just look into it and and really i think ultimately that's a that's a scientific that's a scientific attitude you know because what drives science is curiosity and we were curious and right. uh you know and so it's that and then the other thing i think that you know so we you know presented all of these wild ideas to a wider audience and people obviously have these kinds of experiences and they find something in those ideas and i think a lot of you know the the solid contribution we can say that we made was we brought mushrooms to the world you know we oh well right yeah definitely know, we i mean other people were doing it too but we developed a technique for growing mushrooms that basically anybody could do you know and our motivation in doing that was we wanted consensus. We wanted to make, you know, give other people a chance to grow mushrooms so that they could take them, so they could verify what was happening, what we had experienced, and and that pretty much happened. You know, so now mushrooms and the whole meme of mushrooms associated with, you know, that phenomenology that's really a, a part of of the culture now. You know, and right or wrong, it's very much integrated in into the culture. And you know, other people can take mushrooms, grow mushrooms, have these experiences, or not. Or you know, and it's the whole spectrum. I mean, I'm sure people do take mushrooms who say, you know, I took mushrooms. I didn't see any aliens. I didn't. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> And others do, so you know. <laughs> but but I guess I guess one of the one of the concrete contributions we made was we put in the hands of people uh, tools so that they could go out and verify this for themselves or or disprove it for themselves. So that's a very scientific thing. I mean, you know, religions don't. We could have started a cult. We didn't really do that. Religions, as a rule, do not invite you in to examine the tenets of the faith, you know, and disprove them if you can. So, you know, we weren't we weren't really encouraging that. That that's one of the things that sets science apart from a lot of human endeavor. It actually it, it constructs models, you know, right. and it says here's That was very pro- that was very ambitious actually bringing deciding to bring the mushrooms to the people. It shows a lot of uh, you know, get doing do it yourself bring bring yourself up by your bootstraps kind of can do attitude like we're going to do this. Yeah, well we did and we and we wanted to bring it to the world. I mean there was a certain mercenary motive. I won't say that there wasn't, but but really the motive was I mean we wanted access to the mushrooms ourselves and we didn't want to go back to La Chirera and we wanted to be, you know, not particularly and we wanted to be able to share mushrooms with other people and say 
what do you make of this? And that made it possible, of course. I mean, of course, now there are much better techniques for growing mushrooms, but, but the thing is, they're out there, and now they're just part of the culture. And, and uh, so I think, in some ways, if you say, what was our you know, lasting influence on, on society, on the culture, it was that anybody who wants to can now find mushrooms and, and take them. And, I, and that's actually, I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, we're actually coming to the end of our program today, um, but I want to thank you, Dennis, for coming on. Now, tell us first, uh, before we go, where can we find your, uh, your, your books? Um, you can, tell us about your website and so Okay, on. you can find the books on Amazon.com is the best mm-hmm. and easiest place to look for them. Both the softcover printed copies and the e-book are there, and they're, they're pretty reasonably priced. I think the e-book is like $10, bucks, nine ninety nine. Mm-hmm. The soft covers uh, about twenty, so those are there. You can just place your orders, and that's the simplest way. My website, uh, Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss dot com. I don't. The only books I sell off that website is if people want signed, limited editions for collectors' purposes. They can order it directly from me off the website, and I I add some money onto that. But these are mostly for people that you know they want a like a personalized message or a collector's edition because we we produced a few a limited number of hard hard covers and mostly soft covers so amazon.com is the is the place to look first if you don't want a signed edition and if you want a signed edition order from the website right and are the signed editions hardcover or are they both options both options are available well, thanks so much for coming into uh, the Mojo Video Tech Studios and joining us. And uh, I want to thank Mojo, of course, for having us here today. Uh, James, uh, of course, thank you for uh, Skyping in with us. And, uh, yeah. the thanks, It's James. been fascinating. Thank you, Dennis. Yeah. Thank, thank you. It's been, been a very, it's been a very lively discussion. I didn't realize we'd get into all this, but this, is, this has been fun. It's, I've, been wa- <laughs> I've been waiting for years. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Look forward to the next one. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody. Uh, I'm, I'm your host, Jay Kettle, and uh, this is the Business Nation Special with Dennis McKenna. Thank you. <laughs>